Welcome to the Care Exchange, the Skills for Care podcast for Melanie's in Social Care. My name is Pia Raffier Burton. And I'm Ali Rusbridge. And today we're going to be talking to Ruth French. Ruth is the Operational Director for Stove Healthcare. Now, Ruth started her career working as a civil servant and came into care by accident. Her parents ran a farm in Suffolk and within the grounds there was a building that an odd organisation ran as a nursing home. That care home was failing and Ruth and her family took it over and turned it around. And they came into that area of work knowing nothing about what a care home should be like, but they knew what they wanted it to be like. And four years later, they felt they knew enough to buy a second and fail home. And now 11 years on and six failed homes uh, that they've turned around. So healthcare owns six care homes, five of which are nursing and many are rated overall outstanding. Uh, a number of the care homes and Stove Healthcare have mo- received multiple awards, with Ruth herself winning the Rising Star Award as the Languishon Award in 2021. So really excited to talk mm. to Ruth. I'd uh, be interested to hear about what it's like to come into the sector uh, and her how she turns all those great homes around. So on with the show. So welcome to the Care Exchange, Ruth. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here with you both. Yeah, really good to uh, to have you here. And I know you've got lots of things to share to us. So I'm really excited about mm. having you on the Care Exchange. So first of all, um, we heard in the introduction there that the Stove Healthcare specialises in turnaround of failing services. So what's your experience? In your experience, what are the main sort of issues? What are the reasons why services fail? Yeah, you're right. I mean, I've got quite a lot of experience of going into homes that for one reason or another just haven't worked out. But what I would say from the homes that I've gone into is the main issue has always been around leadership or Mm. a lack of leadership in that home. And usually over a sustained period of time, sometimes up to five years where there hasn't been a stable manager in post. Um, A lot of it is also about provider input. And I say that as a provider, Um, and that's why it's important for me that all of our homes are within commutable distance of where I live, because the personal impact when you're taking over a failed home can't be underestimated. Yeah, it must be really difficult when you first have those first meeting with a new staff group. How do you manage that? Um, There's always a lot of trepidation and I think that's that's on our part as well, because Mm. you don't know how you're going to be received by staff. Very often um, those staff won't know the home is being sold and we've often turned up on the day um, and, you know, we've literally been tagged onto the end of a staff meeting to say, by the way, here's your new owners. Um, You know, people have very different ways of approaching the sale of their business um, and it's often left to a the manager or an interim manager or someone you know senior in the home to pick that up and it's very tough um i think it has become easier over the years because now we're a company that has got um, a national level reputation so we can go in and say we know this is a really scary time for you we know there have been issues in the home um this is our reputation this is our intentions we want to talk to you we want to listen and learn because the truth is that in every home that we've taken over we've learned something from that service and that's good things as well as the bad 
every home has something interesting to offer that we haven't experienced before and often something that we can take and share with our other homes so it's very rare you go into a home and there's nothing beneficial that you can learn and take away with you um, but having those reassuring conversations with staff and residents and their families who are very often extremely worried by the fact that someone is coming in to take over they might not be aware of the faults in the home that you're aware of yeah you said people were the staff might be full of trepidation and do, do you find sometimes that the staff are very sort of not wanting to change or, or do you think they're generally quite open once you go in and say look you know we're coming in now um i would say it's 50 50 um mm. Generally, when we take over a failed home, probably 50% of the staff there are utterly dedicated to their residents. And even though they knew the home had significant failings, um, they didn't want to leave because they cared so much about those residents. The other 50% probably realised they couldn't get a job anywhere else. And that's why they stayed there. And our role really is in those initial few months, um, putting in those strong examples of leadership in the home, setting expected standards um, and then seeing who can work with you. One of the issues that we often find, though, is really sadly, people have not had the appropriate training relevant to help them do their jobs properly. And if they had have had that, you know, a lot of them would have been in a far better position. So by looking at the training that people have had, by making sure you do as much face to face tra training as possible, Try not to rely on e-learning because it doesn't help you really understand yeah, what, the, what the staff know and what they don't. And if you can get those things right, it usually gives you the building blocks of a strong staff team. Yeah. And I suppose taking the opportunities of that training, listening to what staff are saying and what they are finding tricky and what they are happy with, I suppose, is, is using that, that time as well, isn't it? Yeah, your, your staff are so good at identifying what actually works in the home. They'll know the things that aren't working properly, but there will be things that are good. And you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm. Mm. You do want to make sure that staff have got that feeling of, of some kind of continuity in the home. But most importantly, they need to have that face time with you. They need to know that they're supported um, and to know that, you know, things are going to change for the better. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And. I'm sure you must have to create improvement plans. That must be a, a key part in, in taking over a, a service. What's your sort of top tips for creating a really good improvement plan? Yes, we absolutely love our improvement plans. Um, <laughs> they're really important for lots of reasons, um, not least to help you chart your progress because those first few months, frankly, up to 12 months in some cases, can feel like wading through treacle. Um, the way that I've always tended to organise things is to do that by CQC key lines of inquiry. That helps me organise my thoughts. It helps give us some structure to what we're doing. So to really focus on, on going through each of the Chloe's, um, seeing all of the things that can be improved. In our experience taking over failed homes, a lot of that can be around safety, um, you know, simple things that you might take for granted in a well-run home such as there being fire drills taking place on a regular basis that people have had their fire training um, that you've got evacuation equipment in place all of those simple things really count for a lot and then what I'd say is talk to your inspector and make sure that they're aware of the things that you're 
um, focusing on and also that the, pro the progress that you're making. So in the most recent home that we've taken over, I've tended to do an update on around about a quarterly basis, um, looking at um, CQC Chloe's and what we've achieved against each outcome. And I think, you know, that gives you really good grounds for just um, knowing for yourself that you have started to make a difference because you can't turn the ship around um, in five minutes and you've got to be prepared to really be in there for the long haul um, to, to get that home where it needs to be. Yeah, absolutely. Do you do, um, just so practically, and we always like to kind of get really practical top tips, do you do like an, an Excel sheet or do you do it on a, do you hire colour coded or do you have like a another system? What, how do you do an improvement plan? Um, I, I, I do tend to do it in Word, um, to be honest. So it's it's nothing um, too extreme. But yes, I love colour coding. So um, I sort of have a red, amber, green and blue. And blue is when things are really up and running and completed. And, you know, you know, you can properly cross that off your list. Because when you've achieved something and it's green, I think it still needs a bit of oversight until mm, you make sure point. that it is properly embedded. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I use four colours for my colour coding. And it sounds like your red, your your presumably that's the ones that you prioritise. You start with safety as your priority. You said just now, is that is that yeah. always the priority? Um, it's safe. It's safety, yes, but it's also about care quality mm. and taking that time to observe practice in the home is really important. Um, you know, I've been into homes before where I've seen someone just be hoisted in the middle of the lounge, um, not not covered by any screen, not not any level of dignity. And the home manager at the time was watching that. I said, is this normal practice in your home? Yes. Mm. Like, OK, so now I know actually we've got a bigger problem than that, because if you think it's OK to treat someone in an un undignified way in a, in a common space mm. that says to me that actually we've we need to dig quite a lot deeper here because mm. what could be happening behind a closed door and that's helped us launch into things like you know a focus on dignity and care through a whole month for a home that we're trying to turn around lots of practical exercises we find are needed because it's all fine and well doing training even face-to-face -face training but actually you also want people to discover for themselves what some of this means. So we've created things like dignity hazard rooms. Um, we've done fire hazard rooms as well. But, you know, we've laid a mannequin in the bed and we've placed up to 30 or 40 dignity hazards around the room. You know, it might be a dirty pair of glasses or a pad lying in the corner of the room, but also things that you might not spot unless you're looking really carefully. So the fact that someone's got a dog magazine next to their bed but if you read in their care plan they've actually got a fear of dogs um so we do those kind of things to really give staff practical grounding in what it takes to offer holistic dignified care yeah that's and so is that sort of part of your training when you do those rooms yeah it, it is part of the training and we found for a lot of our staff um they do a practical job and therefore, it's really important to be able to provide practical training to them. And it's those things. It's actually practicing how you evacuate someone on a mattress from a bedroom down a flight of stairs. Those are the things that people remember. They don't always remember the things that they've sat in a room and talked about. They remember the things they've done, because that is usually the kind of learner that we have. Absolutely.
Yeah, and those practical experiences makes a big impact on you, and you remember those. Um, you chatted before about um, black box thinking. So can you tell us a bit more about that, about black, black box thinking? Yeah, I mean, this isn't a theory that I've come up with, but it's a, it's a book I read a few years ago, and um, it's by a chap called Matthew Syed. So the principle of black box thinking, and we've all heard about black boxes in the airline industry. And his theory is that aviation as an industry is very good at learning from events that happen. And, you know, a plane crashes, the black box is retrieved, they go back, they analyze, they listen to those conversations. Um, and as an industry, they're just generally very good at thinking about that. So if there's a near miss, pilots have to submit a report. Again, it's looked at, it's learned from, lessons go out. In healthcare, and, and that's called, he would say, a growth mindset. Um, he argues that in healthcare, we've got much more of a fixed mindset. Um, and I think probably in part, that's because people are much more scared about making a mistake because... Mm there's a significant chance that if you make a mistake as a, a doctor or a nurse, it could be career ending. There's much less focus generally on learning from lessons. Um, so I think what I've tried to do in my company is to really help people learn from what happens in our home, whether that's conducting an analysis on falls and not just a single fall, but looking back and thinking, well, let's look at all of the falls that have happened in the last three months or six months. What are the common themes? What can we take from this? How can we improve our environment? Or for example, a medication error that we had last year. And um, it was a serious error. No one came to any harm, but there were some important lessons to be learned from that including enabling um, meds trained staff whether carers or nurses to feel empowered to challenge practice if they didn't agree with it and what we did as a result of taking forward um, those lessons learned was to actually get an external trainer in to run some sessions with staff that was really not focusing on that incident in particular but it was really focusing on how we can learn, how we can support each other, how we can challenge without making someone else feel rubbish. Um, it's, it's doing it in a much more supportive way. So I hope in our way that kind of encompasses the spirit of black box thinking. And I really feel this also fits into CQC's um, new strategy um, in terms of uh, safety through learning. Yeah. And I hope that's something that we in social care and, and healthcare in general can really start pushing forward with much more because we can improve what we're doing if we just take the time to look at it in a non-judgmental and blaming way. Yeah, and I, I think the lack of blame, I think, is really important because I think people don't want to report things because they're worried about that blame. Um, so I think that's a really interesting point and I think it, it really interesting you're taking from the from the book as well about that hierarchy that sometimes exists and, and exists within social care as well that uh, you know a, a, a care staff might may not feel like they can sort of say to a nurse well I don't think you should be doing it that way so I think that's a really important and um, you know it sounds great idea to get get people together and, and talk about it openly and honestly really yeah absolutely uh, absolutely what do you think other care organizations can learn from black box thinking if they were going to use that 
Well, I think it will be really helpful for as we start to learn more about CQC's um, evolving strategy, looking at how they can apply it to that, because, um, you know, it's, it's very critical, I think, that we understand what the regulator's focus is and how we as providers can support that in our everyday practice and then can, can evidence what we're doing. Um, and I think if we all start to focus a little bit more um, on sharing good practice, and that's not just within our own homes, uh, our own groups, if we have them, but beyond that as well, um, looking at the, the care associations that people are part of, looking at the part that they've got to play. There's a number of groups out there that enable the sharing of good practice. And I think um, it's really important for us to be honest about challenges that we've gone through in our own companies. Um, and feeling able to share those and to learn from other people's experiences as well. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting as well. You were talking about um, kind of creating a culture. And obviously with that training, you've, you've, you've obviously done that or started to do that where staff feel safe to admit and report mistakes. So how, how do you create? So you obviously you talked about training, but how how are the other what are the other things you can do to kind of create a culture where staff feel that they can admit mistakes and they can report near misses as well? Yeah, I, I think going back to what you said before, Pia, it's um, it's about staff feeling supported in their workplace. Um, about management teams having that open door policy um, and knowing that if something arises, you have got people to talk to about it, um, knowing that there shouldn't be fear around that. Um, and actually knowing that whatever has happened, the best thing to do is to talk through it because there will always be a step-by-step -step solution to getting through that. There will always be, you know, a reasonable outcome that can be found. And if there's lessons to be learned, you know, they will be learned. The bottom line is everyone's human. Um, accidents, incidents happen. They It would be very rare that these things happen on purpose. It's human mm. error. Um, and I think it is important for people to understand um, and, and be treated with compassion. I think um, we're in a position now where... The workforce that has been with us through the pandemic um, doesn't matter which social care setting you're in. You're pretty exhausted now. Yeah. doesn't matter what job you're doing. You're shattered and it makes it easier to make those mistakes. And I do feel that people have to be treated with compassion, understand why that has why that has happened, how we can avoid it happening again. But to nonetheless, you know, treat people first and foremost as human beings. And, um, you know, we have to be honest about what's happened, but it doesn't have to be the end. And you mentioned before about the importance of the leadership aspect of that, because in a sense, you're saying that the leadership needs to create a culture of psychological safety within an environment. I mean, how how that's a really hard thing to do. How would you say that other homes could go about that? I would say as a company, we've had a focus on mental health and well-being um, absolutely through the course of the pandemic and um, and before that too. But of course, the pandemic has brought it much more to the forefront of our minds. Um, so it's making people feel 
safe before anything (laughs) ever happens to them so some of the things that we've done are just to make sure um, that staff know what levels of support are there and are accessible for Mm. them for example we've produced a a pocket-sized guide um, called raise your hand which um, it's for staff a lot of the time to support each other Um, this isn't necessarily a, a mental health first aider trained staff this is just someone who sees that they might have a colleague who's under pressure and suffering and needs a few question prompts to open up that conversation or equally it's a valuable resource for someone who feels they need a bit of help themselves Um, so just putting that information in one place for staff is valuable Um, but also what I feel is really important is that opportunity to have regular catch-ups on a one-to-one basis and a group basis with staff so people feel they've got that ongoing dialogue Um, And I do that on a quarterly basis with the people that report to me. Um, And inevitably, I find something out through those discussions that helps me understand that person and the pressures they're going through a lot better. Things like supervisions are really difficult to find time for sometimes in our industry. But um, in my in my book, um, there is no substitute for them. And it solves so many problems further down the line. Mm. yeah absolutely I agree yeah just moving on to something completely different so um you sort of kind of regularly involved with media you've done interviews for regional uh, tv news national uh you've written for many articles in the sector press you've done radio why do you invest time doing that um I I guess there's there's a few different reasons for that and And also, I would say that this isn't really something I did prior to the pandemic. I think what the pandemic has made me realise is it is important for me to stand up and to have my voice heard as um, as a care provider and as a female care provider. And I want to be that sort of role model in social care. Um, I've probably suffered for a lot of my life with imposter syndrome and thinking, well, I can't go on the radio, I can't go on TV. What if they ask me a question and I don't know the answer to it? And I don't want to put myself in that difficult position. But I realised there was a time where I just had to stand up and be counted. And the truth is, in things like local radio or local TV, people aren't trying to catch you out. Um, They want to build a warm relationship with you. They want to understand the human side of the story. And I think once you go through some of those experiences, um, you realise that actually it's not as scary. Uh, You know, things like going on Radio 4 are a little bit scarier, but, you know, build up to it in small chunks. And and actually, I think it's it's just great to have more social care provider voices out there. And, yeah, I've been proud to represent the industry. Do Do you ask your managers and encourage your staff to do the same and to be active in the media? Um, I've, I've probably not got a load, a load of staff who um, would love to be out there in the media. Um, <laughs> but recently um, we were recording something um, for local TV 
um, about issues around recruitment. And actually, it was lovely to have one of my staff who was able to step forward and share why she had chosen to come and work in the UK from Slovakia many years ago and why she why she still loves her job and, and being part of the family at that care home. So I think it's about involving people in a way where they feel safe to have that conversation and mm. briefing them on the kind of things they're going to be asked and yeah it I, I think it was a good experience and I think my staff member enjoyed it so being able to kind of flow that down through the home you know that that's a really proud moment for the home to see mm. one of their own appearing on regional tv yeah. as well that's brilliant I bet they were really excited yeah. so when you're having to do some of the kind of live me- and media work and you talked about radio 4 you've done a, a number of interviews what are the things you do to sort of prepare um, and are there things from from those the preparation and, and that live work that you can also use in other situations in your role? Well, I guess the key for me is thinking about what the audience, uh, well, who, who the audience are and what the message is you want to get across to that audience, because that is going to vary depending on whether it's, um you know, something that's local or regional or something that's national level and you know are you trying to get a message across to the politicians or are you trying to get a message out that you're recruiting for local nurses so think about what it is you want to say Um, very often people will share their questions with you in advance and it's it's good to ask for that and do a little bit of preparation yourself at the same time, I don't like to be overprepared. I think it's important to be able to speak naturally and from the heart. And I think what you realise is um, you are very often an expert in your own subject mm. matter and people don't give themselves enough credit for that. I would also heartily recommend that people listen to um, a great podcast by Viv Groskop called How to Own the Room. Um, particularly, this is around women and the art of public speaking. And she has great tips from women speaking across all sorts of different sectors. Um, And I think it's just really important to listen to different people talking about their public speaking experiences, because it can really help you grow in confidence. And all of us in social care have to get much better at telling our own story. We are not necessarily naturals at doing that. And we don't put ourselves forward. And I think that's to our detriment when we don't. You know, the NHS is a massive brand. It's very easy for them to tell their story. Um, we're a much more disparate group of people, which means much, many more of us have to become far better at telling our stories. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I agree. And I think when um, when you're thinking about that, and, and I've listened to the podcast, and it does have many amazing tips. And I think for me, I could really see how that could be useful and giving you that confidence, as you say, start with something you know local and then move on to sort of kind of more national work as well, if you get that opportunity. But also use some of those kind of skills when you are talking to staff, you know, doing a staff meeting, um, you know, if you're talking to relatives, if you're doing any kind of public speaking, and that could be quite quite small, but could still feel, and I know people find that, can be find that quite intimidating, having to stand up in front of a group of people, whoever they are, even if they are people they're yeah. working with day to day. So loads of good, loads, loads of good tips from that podcast. Um, you are a non-executive director of the Outstanding Society. What can managers gain from using the Outstanding Society? So if anyone hasn't heard about the Outstanding Society before, um, do do have a look, um, just 
Google Outstanding Society and, and you'll be able to find the website. But we hold virtual forums every month and they are thematic. So, for example, um, some of the themes we've got coming up later in the year are how to manage complaints effectively um, or recruitment and retention. It, it's always topics that are really timely and important to care home managers and providers. Contrary to the title, you don't have to be outstanding to be a member. Um, in fact, it's really important and probably more important that people join who have that aspiration to be a good or an outstanding service. It's really that aspiration to carry on improving your service and learning from other people. So, as I said, it's free to join. There's a monthly forum that you can hook into virtually um, and there will be more coming onto the website this year as well. So there'll be more and more resources that people are able to access. And we work really closely with Skills for Care. So Skills for Care will often appear as part of our meetings. So there's a lot of shared learning opportunities there. Absolutely. Yeah, no, worth worth kind of exploring if you haven't looked at it before. And as you say, the website's got lots of information as well. And we also heard in the introduction there that Stove Care for Care is a multi-award winning service and, you're, and you, you and your staff have won a huge list of awards. <laughs> Why do you enter awards? I mean, it's probably only something that we started to do five or six years ago. Um, I think uh, that was the point at which we started to think, actually, we have got a story to tell. Mm -hmm. We have done some really good stuff and we want to start shouting about it. So I think awards have a variety of different purposes. Um, every year we put forward individuals, we put forward teams, we put forward homes um, and we put forward for group awards too. And we do have a really good level of success. And what I would say is, Writing award nominations isn't as scary as people might think it is. It doesn't have to cost you a fortune to do. Um, really what is critical is thinking about those little golden gems that are so important in demonstrating not only you've done this thing, but what the impact has been on someone's life. So, you know, if you take a head housekeeper, for example, you know, what they do is really special in our home because it has this impact on resident experience. And if you can distill all of that, um, you don't, it doesn't need anything big or clever to do it, but it makes such a massive impact in terms of morale in the home. And it's a great marketing tool for companies out there who, you know, want to plug all of the great things that they're doing. They, they might need to fill beds. They want to recruit new staff or shout about what you're doing. Um, there's so many opportunities, lots of different awards to look for. So, yeah, I do think it's important in the industry. It's great. You've, you've really been showing the importance, I think, of sharing success and, and the positive things that are happening. And you've done that. You do that a lot in your organisation, don't you? Is there ways that you do that internally as well as through the awards? Yes. Um, I mean, there's a variety of different things. Uh, I mean, on further awards, we, we are launching our own in-house awards oh, this right. year. Um, but what I also find important is just that ability to thank staff when they've done a good job. Uh, sometimes people don't need a whole trophy. You know, actually what they just want is a thank you card saying, I really appreciate what you did. Mm -hmm. um, and other nice things that have been developed, you know, not by me, but by home management teams have just been the way that they can reflect the compliments they receive more effectively in, in their homes. So, for example, in one home recently, they've bought um, 
a fabulous um, tree stencil from Amazon that's um, been adhered to the wall. And then there's frames hanging from the tree with all of these amazing compliments that have come in from families in recent weeks. And then, of course, you can change the compliment in the frame. So it's an ever changing positive tree. Um, So, yeah, you know, things like that are important for staff to feel that their good work is being recognised. And that can happen at lots of different levels. Yeah, I'm sure staff, staff must be really proud if they see their, their compliment on that tree. Mm, great yeah. idea. Yeah. So you have six registered managers. Um, yes. They must be really, really important to, you know, to your success, really, because they are there they're doing, doing the, the groundwork, aren't they? So how do you recruit new registered managers? And um, I suppose, more importantly, how do you retain and develop them? Well, we've never advertised, um, or at least not for the last decade. Um, We generally recruit through personal referral. Um, A lot of our home managers have worked together in previous roles. And for us, it is such a critical role that, to be honest, it's very difficult to work out in what is actually a relatively short interview, whether that person is going to be right for you. So, I think it is really important to use that personal referral. Um, I appreciate that's not always possible, but for us, it's been a really rich source of recruiting um, managers who've been able to stay and grow and create real stability in the homes. Because the other thing is when you've got a failed service, the last thing they need is managers coming and going. So those recruitment decisions we make are very fundamental. And it's extremely rare that a manager comes and goes quickly with us people generally stay for a long time I hope that is because they feel really well supported Um, as a company we're still small enough to have that personal touch Um, but it's also being alive to the challenges that people are facing and knowing when additional support is needed perhaps putting in one-to-one counselling or one-to-one leadership coaching or group supervision opportunities as well, because people need different kinds of support. And what can't be underestimated, and I, you know, goes back to the point I was making about my homes being commutable, is people having a bit of FaceTime with you. Um, All of the virtual stuff is good. And um, of course, we've had to make far more of that during the pandemic. But being able to go and see someone face to face or having a regular chat on the phone. People just need to know that you're there. And I think without exception, our managers would say this is the best supported they felt in any job. Um, there's probably no tougher job out there that I've seen than being a care home manager for the demands that you have on your time. And it needs a special kind of support to help people through that role. So important. Can I just ask you about the coaching? So we've my ear pricked up because it's something that we've kind of come back to a few times, haven't we, Ali, in, in mm, other yeah. episodes? Yeah. How, so this is, um, do you get that externally if, if, a, mem- if a manager feels that they would, be, they would find that beneficial? Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing I should say is I do that myself too. Um, I realised probably only within the last six months that it was really important for me to have that outlet and to have someone to talk to. And I think when you're at the top of a company and you don't have someone to Mm. offer you that supervisory experience, it can be a bit limiting. So um, I use that same leadership coach that I recommend to my managers to help me talk through things in a confidential, structured and supportive way. Um, so I know that the quality of what managers are getting when they feel the need for that, you know, and that might just be a course of 
three sessions for you know once a month or it might be something longer term it depends what people are going through at the time but I think you just have to listen to what people are asking for or maybe they're not asking for it um, vocally but you can see that someone needs that extra time and just taking the opportunity to offer it sometimes people don't want it but put the offer on the table and, and look at what can be provided beyond what I can offer myself because um, I'm not a professional coach. Mm. Yeah, it's so important. Yeah. yeah. Well, in every episode, we have our time for care slot where we're going to ask you to share your most time-saving tip with the listeners. So what, what would you say was your, your time-saving tip? Well, I think everyone that I work with would just use one word, which is dictate, because I've become a dictate obsessive. Um, and I'm trying to convert everyone to the dictate religion, but some people are proving resistant. Um, so I dictate, um, I mean, obviously not in an open office, but I go into a, a private room to do it. But I dictate all of the write-ups of the one-to-ones that I have, minutes of meetings. I dictate messages on my phone when I'm out walking the dog first thing in the morning. It honestly saves me two thirds of the time um, and I can't recommend it highly enough once and how do you then convert the dictated into do, do you then have a put it on your computer don't um, need to don't need just to. got it I there as a voice open, I open a word document and I press the microphone button and I start speaking right um, and yeah I mean people can google it and have a look but it's so simple it's probably got about a 95% accuracy. So as long as I reread it at the end and correct any ridiculous mistakes, um, but it's still quicker than typing. And I'm not a slow typist, but for most people, it's a big time saver. That's brilliant. So if people haven't yeah. come across that, they need to, they're all going to be scrabbling now to go and look it up. And see, Absolutely. See to do it. Brilliant. Great top tip. Yeah, Thank you. very good. Um, love it. I love it. And uh, we'll be doing it now, won't we? Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, our final question is always, uh, if we can imagine that we're in the lift, uh, we're on the 10th floor of a large building and we're going down. So before people get out of the bottom, you've got a chance to give your key message. Anything that you said or something you haven't said, what would be the key thing that you would want to, to leave people with as a, as a final message takeaway? I would say in social care, we deal with so many critical situations, so many things that we've never encountered before. And we have a choice. Um, and to quote um, the CEO of TripAdvisor, Brian Chesky, you can either say, why me? Or you can say, watch me. And we should say, watch me. We need to lead our staff. We need people to have confidence in what we are taking forward. And we just need to act as role models because in, in a crisis people need someone with a calm head and um, even if you don't have that immediate plan of action you need to have that confidence to know that that plan of action will come to you and you carry on and um, you demonstrate to your staff that you're the right leader in a crisis to support them through it. Brilliant. Yeah great excellent thanks very much that was really useful and, and, and worth thinking about that crisis management I'm sure that's something that you've got a lot of experience in so thank you very much for that 
So thank you so much, Ruth. That was really yeah. interesting. You've shared loads of inf in, uh, interesting and useful top tips for managers listening. Definitely things that things that I will be reflecting on. Um, and and uh, in preparation for today, I, I kind of read the uh, Black Box Thinking book, and I'll thank you for that. It was a fantastic book to, <laughs> to read, and I learned loads. And I am literally thinking about all the mistakes that I can learn from from now on. So thank you for that. So if you check that out if you're if you're listening i'm um, just so, gonna go and look up dictate now yeah and dictate as well <laughs> that sounds like a time-saving tip good times so thanks very much ruth uh thanks for your time today bye thank you thank bye. you bye bye so ali that was another good conversation yeah. whoa so many tips and advice that she was able to give uh, oh. i know i love the dictating one i just i thought i know well. i didn't know what it was at all yeah oh i never knew you could do that so no. definitely i'm going to be going off googling that so i think obviously the 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 ruth and her organization are absolutely expert in in making improvements and and making big changes aren't they really you know yeah. and and you know they're clearly that's what they that's what they're trying to do and that's what they obviously do really really well um, all that experience of those those was it six um yeah services yeah absolutely lots of things to uh, to learn from that. and i really like that she was saying that when they go into a new service that it's not all bad you know mm. that they learn something positive from every single new service they take over and they use that learning to kind of spread across the rest of the, the, the other service, the existing service. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. So I think there would, you could imagine there being sort of kind of a tendency to think, oh, well, everything in here is bad. You know, we just mm. got to change it all to our, our way of doing things. But actually going and saying, well, it looks at all the things that's good and look at all the things that can be improved yeah. and then work with our improvement plans to, uh, to make some changes. That real focus on sharing learning, wasn't it? That she yeah. kept coming back to, yeah. Absolutely. So we have some new resources around improving your CQC rating, and it doesn't have to be if you are a failing survey, it could be improving just in general or improving your rating to outstanding, it could be whatever you want it to be. But those um, resources are, you know, some checklists and some um, kind of action plan type, type uh, templates that you can use. We've also got this new um, sort of kind of e well, it's not e-learning, but it's kind of a module that you can do around uh, improving your CQC rating. It's called a virtual learning module. And um, you it's, a, it's an hours long, so not a huge amount of time, but really covering a lot of details around what what's your step-by-step step -step approach to kind of looking at qualities and making real improvements. And um, as, as a small cost to this, so the module is £10, but you can claim uh, £50 uh, workforce development funding back from it once you've completed that module. So quite a lot of funding that you can claim. And obviously that difference would be around the time that you spent doing it, but also time you might be taking to embed some of that learning within your organisation. So if you're thinking about, oh, I've learned something new, or I'm going to change the way I do an improvement plan, then that time, will, the time you spend doing that, you'll be claiming for. I've, I've had a look I think it's a uh, really useful there's, there's some I definitely recommend people have a look at that yeah absolutely and the other thing that she stressed so much that I'm thinking about she did stress that importance of um, the contact with the staff didn't she and the face-to-face -face particularly she mentioned but the the she said you can't 
undervalue supervision those weren't her words but really the importance of supervision she kept coming back to that didn't she and, and um that support also she talks about the support she gives to her managers and making sure that everybody is really feeling um supported in the organization and i think that supervision support is interesting because we did a webinar on effective supervision and developing supervision yeah. skills to support your staff last year and it's been our most uh, popular webinar i think or, or yeah, one of one, the most popular one of the most, yeah yeah and and um i mean that webinar if people haven't listened to it it's definitely worth a listen because it's only a half an hour webinar but um alongside it we've got lots of resources including um the effective supervision practical guide which again has proved a very popular download it's, it's yeah. going through some of the basics but I, I think we can't stress enough um you know as as Ruth said how important supervision is so that's something that might be worth um just a, a look for people if um or a refresh if they look before yeah, and it's uh you know learning again learning from how you're doing supervision and maybe reflecting on whether it can be done um any better or any differently would be a good thing to do yeah and i, I think also thinking about what's the purpose of doing supervision you know yeah. that, that's a really a good chance to talk about that as well that good chance to listen to staff about mm. what what's working and what's not working you know what are they what they're finding tricky and what are the things that they're really pleased about you know so using the yeah. opportunity absolutely so that's it for the care exchange this time thank you very much for listening we hope you have enjoyed the episode with Ruth thank you very much bye okay bye